Well, greetings and welcome to the Patients Come First podcast. On this episode, we are honored and delighted to have Virginia Governor Ralph Northam join us. Governor Northam is the 73rd Governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia. He is an Army veteran and officer and a physician specializing in pediatric neurology. To use a well-worn line, we're pleased to say the doctor is in the house for this episode of the Patients Come First podcast. Welcome, Governor. Thank you, Julian, and thanks for uh, all that DHHA does for uh, the care of our patients across the Commonwealth. We appreciate your efforts. Absolutely, and we appreciate the work you're doing. In the name of full disclosure, I should tell our audience that you and I have actually known each other for several years now, actually going back to even before you were first elected in office as a member of the Virginia Senate. And for the benefit of our listeners, people should also know that you come from a family on Virginia's eastern shore. Your mother worked as a nurse and your father served as an attorney and a judge. You initially chose medicine over law professionally, though you're now Virginia's highest elected official. So your career arc has sort of combined aspects of both of those professions. But I wonder if you could share with the audience what initially attracted you to medicine and how your unique perspective as a physician informs your approach to being an elected member first of the Senate, then Virginia's lieutenant governor, and now as Virginia's governor. Julian, I, I grew up in an interesting family. My my father's side was uh, lawyers and judges. My Both my father and, and grandfather were judges. My, my brother is an attorney. Uh, on my mother's side, she was a nurse. Her mother was a nurse, and her father was a cardiothoracic surgeon uh, up in Washington, D.C. So you know, I, I had the choice of, uh, I guess, going in, in, into either law or, or health care. And uh, I'd also always like helping people, not that lawyers don't help individuals, but I, I thought that, you know, to, to be able to take care of sick children and their families was, was really something that would be for me. So I followed in my mother's footsteps. She was also, after she retired as a nurse on the eastern shore of Virginia, where we grew up, uh, she did volunteer hospice work. And that kind of led me to be uh, interested in, in that type of work. And as you probably know, for 20 years, I was the medical director on a volunteer basis for Edmark Hospice, which is really the only freestanding pediatric hospice in, in Virginia and something that really helped to put my life in perspective. And then, you know, around 2005, 2006, I had some frustrations uh, with health care, the direction that it was going in. And I, I felt like I could either, you know, sit on the sidelines and continue to complain or I could get in there and try to make a difference. So I, I ran for the state Senate in 07 in the 6th District, which uh, includes the Eastern Shore, where I, I grew up, both Accomack and Northampton County, and then about half of Norfolk, a little bit of Virginia Beach, and then uh, Matthews County. And so I, I ran for, for that seat. Didn't really know a whole lot about politics, but anyway, we were successful, and I served for six years in the Senate, and then in the four years as lieutenant governor, and, and uh, then in 17 ran for governor. And, uh, you know, we've been able to, I think, hopefully incorporate some of what I, you know, feel strongly about in, in health care into policy. And as you probably remember, the, the smoking ban in restaurants was one of the first pieces of legislation that I worked on. And that was a bit of an uphill battle, especially for a freshman legislator. Um, and, and the fact that we still have a lot of influence in, in Virginia from the tobacco industry. So to be able to ban smoking in our restaurants uh, was a healthy step for Virginia. And then I've done a a lot of work with with childhood concussions, making sure that our student athletes are safe. So I've I've really tried to, you know, bring some of my experience as a healthcare provider into policy making, and and certainly hope to do that in the upcoming, I guess, three and a half years that I have left as as being the 73rd governor. 
I certainly remember both the indoor smoking ban and your work on concussion, so thank you for bringing that up and reminding us of that. Having spent some time with you and having heard some of the speeches you've given, I recall a story that you've shared publicly about a memorable interaction you had with a young patient and the patient's mother. You didn't have welcome news, yet struggled with delivering it, and I think you've shared some thoughts about how that experience reinforced for you the importance of always trying to to do better, whether in service of patients or on behalf of Virginia citizens. I mm-hmm. wonder if you could elaborate on how that interaction and other meaningful patient encounters you've had have been influential for you. Well, I appreciate that, Joy, and I've you know, taken care of children and their families for, I guess, close to 30 years, and I've had a, a lot of wonderful interactions with families and, you know, learn that, you know, parents and especially mothers would do anything for their, their children, and it's just a, a powerful uh, relationship that they have. And you know, when I was younger in my medical career, I, I had a, a young child uh, with autism, and it was a very severe case of autism. And, and I did some testing and talked to the family. And, and finally, one day in the office, I told the, the mother that there was nothing else I could do for uh, her child or, or the family. And and so time went on, and I uh, that child was about three years old at that time. And when, when the child was 18, the mother saw me in a grocery store and, and came up to me and said, I don't know if you remember me, but I'm Logan's mother and we saw you and we chose not to come back and see you. And I, I said, I remember you very well. And I, I said, it was a, a very difficult case and I, I hope that Logan is doing well. And she said, do you know why I didn't come back to see you? And I said, no, no, ma'am, I don't. And she said, well, you said that there was nothing else you could do for Logan, and it, it took our hope away. And so that was a powerful message from a family. And there are times in children and, and people's lives where you might not be able to cure something, but you can't ever take someone's hope away. And because that, when you do it, it takes away their will to live. And so it was an important lesson to me. And, and actually, it's helped me, you know, with, with taking care of uh, end-of-life care with, with our, our children and our, our hospice program because know that we know that they have a, a life-threatening disease and that we may not be able to cure the, the disease but we can do things like keep them at home with their families where they're comfortable and you know there's some type of hope that you can give to everybody and so you know it's an important lesson in life and an important lesson for me as a clinician and it's something that you know in teaching a lot of students and residents over the years you know I've shared that story with them and you know, hopefully encourage everybody, you know, never take someone's hope away from them because when you do, it's not the news that they, they want to hear. That's great advice and, and a good lesson that I think we all can take something from. As someone who's worked in hospital settings at Children's Hospital, the King's Daughter in Norfolk, you are familiar with the ongoing work to improve healthcare quality and service for patients and their families. That hospital-based quality improvement work inspired the name of this podcast, which is Patients Come First. In your career, you've treated young patients both in private and hospital-based practice, and I know during your military service, you were directly involved in treating wounded soldiers in Germany during Operation Desert Storm, among other posts. Those are two very different patient populations, but they all have their own unique medical needs. I wonder if you can speak a little bit about your experiences tending to patients wounded in service of the nation. You know, Julie and I, I'm a child neurologist, and the, the first question people ask is, well, what is a child neurologist doing in the military taking care of wounded soldiers? And I, so I always like to clarify that. I have had training in pediatrics, but I also had a three-year fellowship in, in neurology. So I'm actually boarded in both 
adult and child neurology. Also have a special competence in psychiatry as well. So anyway, during Desert Storm, which kicked off in 1990, the Army chose to send me to Landstuhl Army Medical Center, which is in Germany, and that's the, the Army's uh, main uh, medical center in Europe. And so it was the first triage out of the desert. So I was in charge of the neurology and neurosurgery service there uh, in Landstuhl, and they would fly the uh, wounded soldiers into Ramstein Air Force Base, which was about two miles down the road. And and so we were taking probably 30 to 40 casualties per day. Uh, it was very busy. I basically uh, lived at the hospital. You know, it's uh, obviously uh, given me a perspective on, on the men and women that serve this country every day. And you know, even now as, as governor of the Commonwealth, we want to do everything that we can to make sure that Virginia is the most veteran-friendly state in the country. So it's, it's very important to me. And again, I've had so many experiences in my life. That I'd also, you know, we, we talk about gun violence in this country. And it it gave me really a, a perspective on these weapons of war. And I, you know, when you've seen those wounds firsthand, it, it just kind of reassures the, the notion that we, we don't need those on our streets and in our society. So, you know, I, I've done a lot in my career and I will continue to work on, you know, efforts for responsible gun ownership in, in Virginia. Well, I appreciate you sharing that perspective and obviously your service in, in the Army as well. A few moments ago, we discussed that one memorable patient anecdote from your career in medicine, and you've provided care to to many people, as we just discussed, soldiers, children, needy people without health coverage at the annual remote area medical clinic or RAM clinic in southwest Virginia and Wise County. And you also talked about your hospice care as well. Among all those experiences, I wonder if you might share another patient story that is poignant for you and, and resonates or remains with you to this day. You know, I was in the Ram Clinic, which is the remote aerial medical clinic there in, in uh, Wise County in August of 2017. And, and I took my you know reflex hammer and my stethoscope with me, and they said, would you mind seeing a few patients? I said, I would love to see some patients. And, you know, the first one that came in was a beautiful little six-year-old girl with her mother, and she was having difficulty walking. And of course, I've been doing this for, for 30 years, and so there are patterns in medicine that, that we look for. But this little girl had a, a form of cerebral palsy that was from a premature birth. And, you know, I sat there and explained to uh, the little girl and to her mother, you know, what was going on and some therapies that would, would help uh, to include some what we call tendon releases that would, you know, give her improved mobility. And it was just very rewarding that the mother said, you know, Dr. Northam, nobody's ever sat and told me, you know, what was wrong with my, my beautiful little girl. I, I knew there was something different, but I appreciate you taking time and, and explaining things to me. And, you know, it's just another case, Julian, that, you know, here in the richest country in the world, people should have access to quality health care. And, and for these individuals to come into WISE to that clinic, that's one day a year where, you know, they can have dental care, their uh, visual care, and then seeing a doctor. And this just kind of reinforces that we need to do better. Uh, that same day, there were two other patients, one a, a teenager and her, her sister who was in her early 20s. And to make a long story short, they had uh, symptoms of challenges where their, their muscles would cramp up and wouldn't relax. And of course, I, I took one look at them and with a reflex hammer made their diagnosis. And, and so they had congenital muscle disorders and needed to see specialists. And there were some endocrine aspects of the disorders that they had. And again, it just reinforces, Julian, that 
we have people across Virginia uh, that have never seen a doctor that could sit down and, and examine them and tell them what was wrong and, and then get them the therapy that they needed. And so, so as a doctor, it's something that is a high priority of mine to make sure that all Virginians have access to affordable and quality care. So, you know, so these experiences in, in life, and I, I could go on and on and tell you a lot of other stories, but, you know, it just makes you, you realize that we can do better than what we're doing. And this is one of the reasons that, you know, we're right in the middle of a, of a process where we're getting a budget for Virginia. We want to expand health care to up to 400,000 working Virginians. And that's why I feel so strongly about what we're doing. Absolutely. And that is a perfect segue to the next question, which is, at this moment, it is late May, and the Virginia General Assembly, as you mentioned, is still working on the state budget and Medicaid expansion to help hundreds of thousands of hardworking, uninsured Virginians get needed health care coverage. As you know, there is a bipartisan compromise on the table that expands Medicaid in a fiscally responsible way. It saves the Commonwealth real money, and it strengthens our health care system and improves community access by raising reimbursement rates for providers. I know you've been long active in the effort to expand Medicaid, going back to your service in the Virginia Senate, and now as governor trying to broker a compromise. It's something you campaigned on and something that you have personally advocated and and have treated Medicaid patients yourself as a practicing physician. At this moment, what are your thoughts on the current state of affairs regarding the budget and coverage expansion? Well, Julian, this process started actually not very long after I was elected to be the governor. Uh, we had discussions during the transition, you know, in, in November and December. And then, you know, I was started reaching out and, and talking to legislators. Obviously, session, the General Assembly session was, you know, January through the early part of March. And, you know, I was hopeful that we would get a budget out uh, in early March that was structurally sound for Virginia that helped, you know, all of Virginians and, and expanded health care. It didn't happen. You know, we've continued those discussions and, and really what I would describe as tough negotiations. You know, leaders in the, the House and the Senate on both sides of the aisle, we have given, we have uh, compromised, and, and we really came up with a plan that we felt uh, is good for Virginia, that, that will expand coverage, that will, you know, give up to 400,000 working Virginians access to health care, that will bring in millions and millions of dollars that we have been sending to Washington to support the Affordable Care Act. Those are resources, Julian, that we could be using for higher education, for K through 12, for the opioid crisis, and to make sure that our law enforcement and teachers have raises in Virginia. And so, you know, we, we thought this was going to happen just a few days ago. The uh, leader of the, the Senate, Republican leader, has asked for another week so that legislators can look at the amendments, and that agreement was made. But they're, they're coming back to Richmond on Tuesday, which is the day you know, after Memorial Day weekend, and it's time for a budget in Virginia. The local governments need it, the people of Virginia need it, and again, I, I think it will be a budget that is structurally sound, that will uh, provide health care to thousands of Virginians, that will protect our AAA bond rating, and it will continue to move Virginia in a positive direction. So, so I have appreciated the tough negotiations that we have had on both sides of the aisle, and uh, but as we say on the Eastern Shore, it's time the fish are cut bait, and we need to get a budget on Tuesday that's good for Virginia. Well, we are all watching and, and hoping for a resolution, a positive resolution in the near term. I know you're very busy and, and have lots of demands on your time, so I think we will conclude our conversation there. But I want to sincerely thank you for, for being with us, Governor, and for all of your service, uh, both in the healthcare arena as a physician and for your services 
the governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia. So thank you, sir, for joining the podcast today. Thank you, Julian, and I appreciate all that BHHA is doing. You know, this is a team effort. Uh, we're all in this together. We've got to share our ideas. And at the end of the day, just make sure that all Virginians have access to affordable and quality health care. So I, I appreciate everybody listening to the Patients Come First podcast and appreciate the time with you. That's going to do it for today's episode of the Patients Come First podcast. You can find new episodes as they become available at www.vhha.com. You can also find episodes of the podcast on SoundCloud. We also encourage you to engage with us on social media, including Facebook and Twitter. If you'd like to send us comments, questions, or feedback for the podcast, you can do that through our Twitter account at VirginiaHHA using the hashtag Patients Come First. Thanks.